Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. Season four of the Business Integrity School is sponsored by J.B. Hunt Transport Services, Inc. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for another episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. And today, I have a very special guest because he's an alum of Walton College with us, Lewis Bowen. Hi, Lewis. Hi, how are you, Cindy? I'm just fine. I'm so excited to have you with us today. Um, He's gotten up quite early. Lewis is joining us from Hong Kong for this conversation. And uh, so thank you for getting up a little early. We're going to jump into our topic of all things ESG, which is the topic for this season of the video podcast. But let me tell you just a bit about Lewis first, because he has a very interesting background. Lewis is the chairman and the chief executive of Asia Capital Management Limited, and he's been in the private equity and venture capital business in Asia since 1981. Prior to that, he spent nine years with Citicorp in New York, including four years being responsible for their corporate finance activities in the Asia Pacific region from 77 to 81. And in his 40 years of private equity and investment banking in Asia, Lewis has been responsible for over 50 investments in a range of industries and countries. He's advised a number of companies on cross-border corporate finance transactions, and he currently serves on the boards of several companies in the Asia Pacific region. Now, Lewis received his MBA in finance from the Wharton School, and as I mentioned, he got his BA in economics from the University of Arkansas. Proud to say he is a member of the Dean's External Advisory Board for Walton College, Dean Waller's board, and he is also uh, on the Board of Advisors for the Arkansas World Trade Center. So, Lewis, it is a real pleasure to welcome you today to the podcast episode and I would just love it if you could start by sharing with the audience how you got from Arkansas with a BA in economics to Citicorp uh, in New York, and then all the way over to Hong Kong, where you've been for a long time. Well, thank you, Cindy, and and it's my pleasure uh, to join you and and participate in this program and, and support what you're doing, which I think is is innovative and uh, a real step forward in the in the area of, of, of business education, uh, a topic that I'm I'm really interested in and, and follow closely. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, my, my track was after graduating from the university, uh, I was trying to decide what what I wanted to do, and um, I I thought about continuing to study economics and going to uh, the University of Edinburgh and studying the life of John Smith. Uh, sorry, Adam Smith, uh, one of my my uh, idols. And uh, instead, a good friend said, "No, I think you need to get a serious outlook on life and go to business school where you can make a living." So, so he recommended <laughs> I <laughs> I applied to uh, to some business schools, and I did, and and I ended up going to to Wharton at uh, at Penn, and uh, as, and took up finance, and of course that led me to New York, and 
um, to join Citibank. And at that time, actually, bank, commercial banks, as distinct from investment banks, which were very separate at that, at that time because of Glass-Steagall, um, was just starting to hire MBAs up until that part in that time. Very few MBAs had been hired by commercial banks. And, and um, a, ver- a real visionary in banking by the name of Walter Riston, who was CEO and chairman at the time, uh, said, no, we're, we're going to start hiring MBAs and we're going to start sending them around in the world internationally. And uh, so I signed on to that program and it was really the first step towards Citibank developing an investment banking capability. And uh, so I joined this particular division and Four years later, they assumed I'd been trained well enough, and they asked me where I wanted to go. And uh, I, like all the other colleagues in that program, uh, I wanted to go to London because that was the uh, seemed uh-huh. to be the, the fun place to go, uh-huh. and, and sort of culturally culturally the easiest. Right. And anyway, uh, I went to see the, uh, the head of the banking group, and he said, "Well, you you you've um, we've got a really interesting place for you, and it's in Hong Kong." And I said, "Oh." Okay. <laughs> well, not, I don't know that much about Hong Kong, but anyway, he said, uh, no, it's going to be all yours. So at the age of 28, they made me a vice president of the bank and sent me to Hong Kong to find out where the Citibank can do investment banking in the Asia Pacific region. And that was, that was how I got here. Um, and from there, you went on and, and formed your own company and, and have gone on to do all kinds of really great things in terms of investing that we'll, we'll talk a little bit about. Well, so let's... Let's turn to that that topic of ESG then. It has become quite an important topic here in the U.S. and you're in Hong Kong and I want to talk about the global aspect of that. But, you know, environmental, social and governance issues, they've been around for a long time, but they've in many respects been seen kind of as over here on the side a bit, you know, maybe not tied directly to the core of a, of a, a, a company's business. Um, I think a number of things have caused that to change lately, COVID for one, um, the social justice issues that have arisen over the last year and a half, Um, business roundtables taken a different perspective on, you know, the purpose of a corporation and and adopting sort of the stakeholder theory and BlackRock's statement, of course, uh, that came out on what they were going to be investing in and expectations of their companies. So my question is, before we dive too far into all of those layers, has this fire been lit in Asia? What is it like? Well, um, the, the short answer to the question is yes, the fire has been lit. Um, it is a relatively recent claim, I have to, to say. Um, I would say that you know, during my first 25 years or so of, of investing in Asia and, and being involved in the, in the financial world, um, there, there was virtually no uh, sensitivity or, or interest in in the subject of uh, our subjects of ESG, and um, and and frankly, it, it it was true for all different levels of of the commercial world, whether it was the, for companies or for uh, employees or investors, and also uh, importantly for policymakers. It was not a it was not something that was really on anyone's radar, and. Uh, but that really has has changed, and I, I would say it's been it's been about ten years uh, since it really started to gain some some speed. I mean, before that, uh, before ten years, maybe going back twenty years, there was an increasing awareness of the 
on the e side of things on the the environmental side mm-hmm. um, particularly as it related to cities uh, because the growth of Asian cities was so intense that um, they were bumping into problems that that uh, people wanted to you know felt that they they needed solutions for and and so that began to focus my people's attentions and minds on on uh, on that particular problem right um, but uh, and and governance, Governance has always been uh, uh, an issue in the Asia-Pacific region for a number of reasons, some of which are unique to Asia. For example, a very high concentration of, of um, family-owned businesses. Uh-huh. Um, unlike the United States and, and Europe, uh, as, as other examples, um, companies in Asia have historically been predominantly always controlled. I'm talking about publicly companies public companies, not just private companies, have been controlled by family business, family interests. But anyway, they, going back to your point is that or your question about the, the trend, the trends are, are definitely in the right direction uh, in all of the areas of ESNG. Uh, I, I think the S is a little more difficult to get your arms around, or at least it has been in this part of the world. You know, what, what is really, what is sustainability? What are the components of it? And of course, one of the main components of sustainability is diversity, right? And and um, uh, and, and that's also another interesting topic to examine in the context of Asian culture. Yeah, um, uh, because of uh, you know very strong predilections toward your own uh, national culture, um, oh. which which often revolve around uh, you know historical. Uh, 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 sort of indigenous parties and, and indigenous cultures, but also the, in particular the role of women in in so, not just society but in businesses. But anyway, so so there's a lot of interesting things about Asia that that have yeah. made the development of of, of um, ESG uh, somewhat more challenging in, in areas and um, and still does. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, if you have a long way to go, you can make good progress. And sure. I, I think I think that's that's the uh, positive note uh, about what's happening in Asia Pacific now. That's very interesting context. And I'm going to ask you a couple of follow up questions on that. Are you in Asia? Are you starting to see, with respect to ESG, that being tied to, let's say, a company's valuation yet, or its market capitalization? Have we have, are the metrics there enough to draw those that tie yet? And is that making is that accelerating the efforts at all? Uh, absolutely, it, it's that is that's that's another characteristic I think of Asia Pacific. Uh, uh, and ESG is that um, I think a lot of businessmen and, 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 and investors, they have to see a reason for, for wanting to make these changes. And um, just because it's the right thing to do is, is really not, not a, a sufficient uh, motivation. So it really started this movement I, I mentioned uh, that which can be uh, observed from, uh, in a significant way over the last 10 years, really started with the introduction of foreign investors in the major equity markets in, in the Asia Pacific, uh, coming in and bringing um, 
bringing the concept of having um, uh, investing in companies that can show uh, measurable uh, movements mm -hmm. in the areas of the ESG. And of course, it's it, it's been spotty. It's uh, and it's uh, been on very quite often very specific issues, but it, it's it's expanded and now um, um, most a lot of areas are being uh, identified by uh, international investors and they're they become activists in in the sense of uh, exercising the right to vote on boards. So measurements that affect people's market valuation and 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 uh, uh, how they're perceived by the investing public. Um, is is clearly having a bite and is important in uh, as as a motivating factor to to move this forward. So let's turn now, uh, Louis, to some of your uh, companies' investments that um, kind of fall into the ESG space. And first, can you just explain a little bit about the journey that that maybe you and your company have been on in terms of when ESG sort of hit your radar screen of not just being something that's good to do, but was actually good for business too, and then roll into right. an example to, to explain that. Right, right. Well, I, I would say I'll go back to the 1990s. And uh, in the 1990s, uh, up until that point in time, most of our focus had been on areas uh, that were related to consumer spending. That was our, our original investment theme. The concept being that the that Consumption, uh, consumer consumption in the Asia Pacific region was the major economic driver of the fastest growing region of the world. Sure. And so, so we wanted to ride that curve, and so we were investing in a lot of consumer businesses. Um, and then toward, and, and one of the first ones that we invested in, uh, which uh, started to get me into and thinking about businesses where. Um, there was a, a need for for the service, not just for consumption purposes, for lifestyle or whatever, but it was actually a need that uh, that also uh, improved people's lives. And that was invested in um, in healthcare services and uh, in, in a company that, uh, involved in uh, primary delivering primary care services. But what really what really got me going was when in um, around the turn of the century. We made uh, our, an investment in a company in the Philippines in affordable housing, and um, the uh, original idea, from just looking at it from a pure business perspective, the driving force there was there was a pent-up demand for housing that was that was mind-boggling, mind-boggling by any standard. Uh, there, there was there was a, a de pent-up demand for about five million housing units uh, countrywide, and. Uh, it was really a question of how to how to be able to deliver that uh, need and 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 get it financed in in the context of the financial system in the Philippines, and so we we thought we would we would get into that. But also um, one of the interesting parts to it was uh, we were given the presentation by the company, and three women came to see us, and they were the founders of the company. Um, and two of them had been bankers uh, with, in banks that I, I knew well, and one of them was a lawyer. And mm -hmm. they came in and they made this pitch. And, and they just said that there needs to be a new approach to how we provide affordable housing in the Philippines. 
we not only need to address the, the social problem of, of, of a shortage, massive shortage of housing, um, but we need to, we think we can have a special marketing approach to this where we focus on overseas workers. Uh, many people don't know this, but the number one foreign exchange earner, one of the largest industries in the Philippines is actually exporting labor. This creates an additional social problem in that you have so many families that are essentially separated by the fact that one member of the family must work overseas on a full-time permanent basis to support um, the, the family at home. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to focus on building homes um, uh, first-time homes for uh, families who have uh, taken the uh, taken the step of sending a, a family member overseas to earn enough money for for them to build their first home, wow. and and they, um, they and they had a particular access to that, which was that they brought in as one of our partners, and we we agreed to invest along with this partner, which was the largest uh, employer of overseas seamen. They were uh, supplying about 45,000 um, uh, seamen, crewmen to, to ships around the world. And, um, and this company had, had the foresight to, to say, we, if we can provide a mechanism to facilitate their purchase of their house for their family, then uh, this is a, an advantage for us vis-a-vis -vis our competitors with the shipping companies. We, we invested in that, and it turned out it wasn't just it wasn't just the three founding women. Most of the company and management were women, wow. and they were they were they were designed when they designed communities instead of just subdivisions where they just built houses. They would put community centers in as a way of of uh, helping build community spirit with these families that that had uh, members of the family that were not there, um, and they just brought a completely different approach to to uh, building affordable housing. Um, they also were the first company to engage in sustainable building materials and, and building practices. Wow. So, and, and all of these, it, the, the interesting thing was, as they were rolling out their plan, you know, a lot of people say, well, what is the cost of this and how does it impact right. the company? And, and what, what transpired was all of these uh, initiatives, which were uh, address, bringing social benefits to the company. Uh, absolutely positively impacted the business uh, from a uh, from a commercial point of view. Yeah, um, they were able they they, they had access to a, a great market, um, and they they built excellent communities, and they became one of the places to go if you wanted to build your first time home in, in you know in the Philippines, and uh, and uh, it was one of the best places in in, uh, in Metro Manila to work. Uh, so it was, it was quite a, that, that, that was the eye-opening experience for me. What a fabulous example. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think you've got another one that, that hits much closer to home here in Northwest Arkansas in the uh, environmental <laughs> slash sustainability also has a tie to food safety. Uh, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that one? Well, uh, uh, a little over 10 years ago, um, I was invited by the university to come back and, um, and, and, and talk to various people in the university about what they were doing as it related to Asia and China in particular, because uh -huh. the, the university wanted a, a started, started an outreach program. They wanted to have uh, you know, better interaction with this part of the world. I, I think 
companies like Walmart and Tyson Foods and, and J.B. Hunt, who are doing a tremendous amount of business over here, uh, uh, thought that that would be helpful to, to increase the, uh, the exposure to Asia Pacific. So I went back and I was giving, given uh, uh, presentations at various colleges about things that were being done as it related to China or Asia. And at the agricultural, agricultural school, Division of Agriculture, uh, they gave a presentation about a, a unique vaccine platform that they were developing um, at the uh, uh, with the support of the U.S. government and uh, Tyson Foods and others, and it was addressing diseases. These were animals um, that, uh, in many cases, these diseases were either endemic uh, uh, in the Asia Pacific or they were certainly a major economic problem. Uh, and they asked if if I could help them find commercial outlets, you know, find a way to take this technology out of the, out of the labs at the University uh, of Arkansas, uh, at, in particular, the poultry health lab, which is uh -huh. in Fayetteville, just down the road from the campus. And, uh -huh. um, and to make a, a long story short, I came back and contacted some people that I knew who understood this field, but I knew nothing about it. So I had to learn myself. And, um, and the Long and short of it is, is that we decided that collectively with some some friends here, as well as some of my friends from Arkansas, my old old friends, uh, to set up a company, and we proposed to the university that instead of just making a few phone calls, uh, which I didn't think would really be very helpful, to set up um, uh, to uh, uh, set up a company that would in in fact seed uh, investment and and then take a license and really proactively find outlets a way to commercialize the uh, the, the vaccine wow. uh, and, and it wasn't just one vaccine it was a it was a whole platform it was a technology platform and that was 10 years ago and we we have uh, uh, done this we've spent 10 years taking technology uh, very interesting leading edge vaccine technology for animals out of the lab. We've taken it into the field. We've developed it in the field. We've, we've uh, put it in front of regulators uh, and, and then we put it now in front of the commercial world. And we had our first commercial successes a couple of years ago with our first license agreements with a major U.S. corporation. And uh, now we are going to expand that business um, by getting into manufacturing of one of our, uh, what's called an adjuvant, which is a very important component of the vaccines. And we're also mm -hmm. going to expand and build our own uh, uh, internal research and development lab. Um, and we're going to set up uh, a major headquarters there in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And, How uh, exciting. Yeah, yeah to, because we want to be close to the progenitor of the technology and, right. and, and to share share resources on, on a, in, in areas where, uh, you know, we know we can get access to help from um, uh, from the university. And, uh, and uh, so we're very excited about this, this program. That's just wonderful to hear. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for partnering with the university on that. That, uh, that. That's another really great example. This has been a fascinating conversation. Loved the examples of some of the investments that not only good for business, but good for ESG. And lo and behold, it, it, it does highlight how they can be tied together. Um, I always like to leave the audience, Lewis, with some further resources that, that they can go to if they want to dig a little deeper into the topic. So are there any good 
uh, I don't know, documentaries or books or, or podcast series or anything that you think might help uh, the audience understand ESG a little bit better or its positioning in Asia? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, I, uh, I've been reading uh, one book and then uh, there's, there's another book that uh, I, I really highly recommend. Um, I, I, Bill Gates has recently published a book um, you know, uh, uh, on, on climate change and, uh, how, how to uh, address that. And right. I think it's, I think it's really well done. It lays out, one. uh, the problems and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, a host of solutions. Um, and he, he does it in a way that's very, re- very readable. You know, he doesn't get down into too many weeds. And I, I would, I would highly recommend that because it, 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 it gives you a good understanding of, of the goal of goal of net zero and right. um, and it talks in, it talks about it in, in very practical terms um, and uh, I, I think in terms of an overall understanding uh, uh, about uh, about that challenge and, and how to address it uh, his, his book I think is a, is a, is a really good read. Um, and the one I'm reading now that I, I'm just finding fascinating, and this this really comes down to a question about diversity. And um, I'm reading uh, Walter Isaacson, Isaacson's newest book about Jennifer Doudna, who mm-hmm. um, in, invented uh, the CRISPR technology um, and won the Nobel Prize for this. Mm-hmm. And and her story, as well as the whole story about the uh, going back to the invention of DNA. And coming up through uh, uh, her uh, her creation of uh, and, and development of the CRISPR technology, which is really changing uh, the uh, the world of uh, biology in, in such a way that it's uh, it's having a dramatic impact on on all of us and will in, in the near future. I am adding that one to my to my book list tonight. I'm going to order that. That sounds very intriguing. Wow, that's great. Well, those are both fabulous recommendations. This has been a very, very illuminating conversation, Lewis. Thank you so very much for your time um, and for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. And I know that all of the University of Arkansas students, faculty and staff and others who listen to this podcast or watch the video are going to learn a lot. So thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. And, and, uh, you know, if I can help in any other way uh, or, you know, if some of your students have questions or uh, would like to follow up in any way, I'd be happy to, to do so. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. All, right. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.